Well, I too say well, welcome to all of you on this uh, most wonderful day of the year, Father's Day. I need to say a, a little word, I think, about what might be happening in the rest of the service. And I, to do that, I need to back up several weeks um, in which there was a day when in the courier there was a recipe for s'mores pie, which somehow got cut out of the paper and ended up on our kitchen counter. And so if the service gets out a little early today, it's because I have s'mores pie waiting for me at home. (laughs) This is the third and final week of the look we have been taking at Joshua. Joshua, one of those amazing characters who had an important role to play in this drama of God's unfolding plan of redemption and salvation that we find in the Bible. And uh, Joshua was one of those really interesting people, and I have enjoyed thinking about him with you. Last week, we looked at God's incredible destruction of the city of Jericho as he brought down those walls. And you remember that part of the instruction that God gave to Joshua and through Joshua to the Israelites was sort of what they... Uh, what that they didn't have to do much of anything, right? They were just to walk around the city in silence. And it was God who would bring down the walls, not Joshua, not the army. But there was also some instruction that God gave to the Israelites about what they were not to do. And we didn't really get to look at that last week. And I want us to focus a little bit on that today as we continue Joshua's story. So let me read you this uh, instruction that God gives to Joshua and the Israelites in uh, chapter 6, starting with verse 17 of the book that bears Joshua's name. Says the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Now, this is pretty unusual because ordinarily when an army would conquer a city or a nation, they would plunder it. And one of the ways that professional soldiers and armies were motivated and paid often was the fact that they were able to plunder the city and take as much as they could carry of the valuables away. In fact, we mentioned, in fact, that one of the, one of the interesting things that we found archaeologically in Jericho was that the city was not plundered. And it's because of this instruction that God gave to the Israelites. They were not professional soldiers. They were not a professional army. And so God brought the victory and the spoils belonged to God in Jericho. Now, after the defeat of Jericho, God is instructing Israel about how they are to continue this strategy to take the nation of Israel that God has promised to them. We've got a map here that we kind of looked at last week. So remember the Israelites have come up on the east side of the Jordan River. They've crossed the Jordan River, and we looked at that amazing scene when God parted the waters of the Jordan River. And they've come to Jericho. They've taken Jericho. Now up a, a steep uh ravine up into to the hills, the hill country in Israel, is the city of Ai. It's, um, it's spelled A-I, and it's pronounced A-I. So, 
This is an IQ test. We're just checking to see how you're doing on that. Now, Ai was also a fortified city, but it was much smaller, less well fortified. And so when Joshua sends scouts up to check out the city, they come back saying, it's a piece of cake. We don't even need to send a whole army trekking up this steep ravine to get to Ai. Two or three thousand men tops need to go. You know what, I read that, I wondered to myself, now is that faith speaking? Are these guys saying, we have such a powerful God, if he could destroy Jericho, he can take AI for us, we don't even need all of these men because we have this great God leading us? Or do I detect a note of pride there? You know, thinking back, yeah, we took Jericho. Oh yeah, we're bad. We can take AI, you know, one hand tied behind our backs. So they send two, three thousand men up to take AI. Piece of cake, right? And it ends in utter disaster. The army of Israel runs for their lives, sliding, slipping, running down the slopes from AI, chased by the, the soldiers from AI. Thirty-six men are killed. Incredible. How could that happen? What happened? To the, to the victory that God had given them in Jericho. What, what happened to the promises that God had made to them about how he was going to give them the land? And Joshua is beside himself. He rips his robes. He throws dust on his head in mourning. Let me read you how it describes what happened to Joshua. It says, Then Joshua tore his clothes and he fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. And the elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? Joshua realizes that it's not just a question of success for Israel. God's credibility hangs on this. One of the things that God has been doing in giving them victory through the times in the wilderness, victory in Jericho, was God was establishing His credentials as the only one true, almighty, powerful God. Now that's gone. Who's going to believe in God now? The enemies of Israel that should have been shaking in their boots now are going to be confident they're going to come down and they're going to attack Israel and it's going to be wiped out. And what's going to happen to the glory of God then? Isn't that the kind of question we would be asking if we were at the same place? And I love the response that God gives to Joshua. It really reminds me of a mother of a lazy teenage boy. Well, you you get out of bed, come on, it's Saturday morning, it's 11 o'clock already. That's sort of what it sounds like when God addresses Joshua. Let me read to you what it says. And the Lord said to Joshua, well, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? I don't know if God used that tone with him or not, but 
Israel has sinned. They violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They've put them with their own possessions. That's why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Now remember, God was very clear about that. We read the instructions that God gave. Everything in the city belongs to God. You don't plunder it. You don't take any of it. Somebody has robbed God and lied about it. And unless you deal with it, Joshua, I'm out of here. And there's going to be no more victory. And there's going to be no more promised land. So Joshua calls together the Israelites and he tells them what God has told him. The sin in the camp has to be identified and dealt with. And so probably by casting lots, God reveals to them who it is who has done this. Tribe of Judah... The, fa- the clan, the family, the man, and it's Achan. And Achan is brought and he stands before the people. And this is what Joshua says to him. It says, then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And this is sort of how I imagine Achan responding. I'm not, I'm not a soldier. Not in my heart. But Joshua, when you called for people to come and fight for God in his army, I said yes. I'll never forget what it was like as we marched around the walls. As we saw God bring the walls down, I felt like I was the hand of God. And I rushed with the other soldiers across the rubble of the walls into the city. And Joshua, it was you. You told us that we should go into the houses and see if there was anybody hiding in there. And so I went into a house there where I was standing. Joshua, do you know I'd never been in a house before in my life? And walls and a floor and a roof. And I tried to imagine what it would be like to live in a house instead of a tent. And it was just like they had left everything right there and and run for fear of their lives when the walls came down. And I looked at all the things that were there. I was mesmerized by it. Just as I was getting ready to leave, I was walking and I I saw something kind of lying in the corner and it glistened in the light. It was a robe. Not just a robe. I'd never seen anything like it before. It was was made with strands of gold in it, Joshua. Gold in the garment. It was beautiful beyond anything I'd ever seen in my life, and I wanted it. I could not. I knew what God had commanded. 
But I couldn't leave it there. I couldn't leave it there. And so I picked it up again. And as I did so, I saw underneath it a bag, just a plain cloth bag. And I picked it up and I poured it out shekels. Shekels of silver, hundreds of them. And there underneath that, a bar of gold. My life would be different. This would change everything. We would never be the same. No one would know. No one had seen me. I, I stuffed the robe into my bag with the, with the shekels of silver and the bar of gold. And I took my knife and I cut my arm and I took the blood from it and I smeared it on my knife and I went running out of the house like I was just one of the soldiers. And I ran back over the walls and I ran back to the camp and I went into my tent and my wife and my daughter-in-law were there and they tended to my wounds. And then my son came back from the battle. I said, I've got, I've got something I need to show you. And I pulled out the robe and the silver and the gold and I showed them and they were shocked. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. I mean, this isn't just for me. This is for, for us. I mean, we could be somebody. Maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but someday, five years from now, we will live in a house and we'll live in a, in a town or a village. And as we settle down, they will elect elders and people to rule over them. If with a robe like this, I could be somebody. I, I could be one of those men that they would choose to be a leader. And I want that. Oh, I want it so much. And so together we buried the robe and the silver and the gold there in the tent. And I thought nobody knew. And someday, someday this will make all the difference. And then the defeat, the tragedy of AI. And you called us together and announced that someone had taken the things devoted to the Lord. And my heart melted within me. And I thought to myself, surely, surely he's not talking about me. It must be... Must we be somebody else who has done this? And as the Lord began to reveal it, one by one it moved closer and closer to me, and I knew I was the one who had sinned. I was the one who had brought this defeat upon Jerusalem, I mean upon Israel. Joshua, I have sinned. I have sinned. May God have mercy on me. The story of Achan, I think, raises some important issues for us to talk about. And in the few minutes we have left, I want us to deal with three of them. The first one is the principle of first fruits. God has told his people in the Old Testament, in Israel, and for us as Christians even today, that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, and what we have belongs to him, and we are commanded and invited to give back to him. And the principle in the Bible is the tithe, 10%, that we are to give 10% of what God has given to us back to him. And not only are we to give 10%, this gets tough, we are to give the first 10%. It's a principle, I suppose, that originated with farmers, as these people were primarily, right? 
so that you begin to bring in the harvest. And as the first fruits are harvested of the grain, the barley, the wheat, the figs or the olives, that you're to take the first of that fruit, of that harvest, and give it to God. Whoa! takes a lot of faith. Because what if before the harvest is brought in, the locusts come or the hail comes and destroys the, co- the crop? And Sally and I have always tithed, but I will confess there were times uh, when I struggled with that. And one of the ways I dealt with it was to hold off till the end of the month. Okay, I believe God's promise is going to provide for me, but this is a tight month. There's some bills coming due, or maybe it's the issue that there was just something on Amazon that I would really like to buy. And if I just put it off till the end of the month and just see what happens. God says we give back to him, we give 10%, and we give it as first fruits. We give it off the top. And I'll tell you, there is one thing that has made a world of difference in that for me, and that is automated withdrawal. I am so glad the church has done that, because now I don't struggle with that issue at all. You know, It just automatically, the first of the month, comes out of our, of our checking account and goes to the church. And I believe that God is honored that I have taken that step of following that principle, the principle of the first fruits. The second issue we need to deal with is a little tougher, and uh, I do it with a little bit of fear and trembling. Here's the issue. People who maybe don't know the Bible well, but know enough of it to know some of the stories in the Bible, like maybe the destruction of Jericho, they look at what God has done and they see God as being a cold, bloodthirsty, vengeful God. God has commanded that everybody in Jericho be killed. Men, women, children. God commands that Achan and his family be killed for their sin. And people raise questions about that. Is that the kind of God you worship? Is that the kind of God you see in the New Testament, a God of love, the God that Jesus has introduced us to? And it raises lots of issues about what we believe God is like. So to understand this, I think we've got to go way back in the Old Testament to the book of Genesis. God is making a covenant, remember, with Abraham. And part of that covenant is that God is going to give to Abraham's descendants this land of Canaan. In fact, God has brought Abraham out of Ur and the Chaldees. He's brought them to to Israel, to that area. And that's where he makes that promise to him. Now, why doesn't God at that point give the land to Abraham and then to Isaac and Jacob and his descendants after him? Well, God tells us why. And I want to read it to you. And this is from Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to start with verse 12. It says, this is, oh, this is an awesome passage. You ought to read the whole thing sometime. So as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. 
But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Let me read that sentence again. For the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, we look at a story like the destruction of Jericho, and we think, here are these good people just living there in Jericho, minding their own business, and all of a sudden God comes along and he decides he's going to take away their land and he's going to commit genocide and have the whole nation killed. What does God say here? It says that God loved the Canaanites, but he hated their culture. And we are finding out more and more about what that Canaanite culture was like. And they were not friendly, fun-loving, good people. They had a, a culture that was depraved and wicked and violent beyond what I think we can even imagine. And God tries to bring them back to himself. And so I believe that God, generation after generation after generation, is this is displaying his power as the one true God. I believe that 40 years before this, when God parted the Red Sea, part of the reason he did that was not just to bring the Israelites out of slavery and freed from the Egyptians, but it was so the very people like these people in Jericho would see the hand of God and repent and turn to him. And he demonstrates his power again and again and again, and they hear of it, and they have evidence that there is a one true God, and he is the God of Israel. But do they repent? They do not. And finally, as I think the King James Bible used to say, you know, their cup of iniquities was full And God said, that's it. That's enough. And he destroys that culture. He does it as just punishment. And he does it to protect the Israelites who will be continually enticed away from God by those pagan practices. If we think of God only as a God of love, we have a distorted picture of God that God is not only a God of infinite love, He is a God of, of justice and righteousness as well. Now we come to Achan. And Achan had two misconceptions about sin that I think many of us have. The first misconception is this, that, that sin is secret. Sin is Never secret. God knows. And so late at night when you're sitting in your home office at your computer looking at porn and you think nobody knows, you're wrong. God knows. And when you set up that account so you can send that anonymous email that is going to really hurt somebody and their reputation, you think nobody's going to know, you're wrong. God knows. And when you harbor in your heart anger and resentment and hatred for somebody else and you long for that day when you can get revenge but you don't show it on the outside and you're pretty sure nobody knows you're wrong, God knows. And sin needs to be confessed and it needs to be dealt with. 
That's the first misconception about sin, that it's secret. The second is that it's personal. Okay, my sin affects me maybe, but it doesn't affect anybody else. You're wrong again. Sin never affects just the sinner. It always has consequences beyond that. That was true for Achan. The whole nation was judged because of his sin. Now, I read this and I look at our nation and I believe we are in a profound state of moral decline and I wonder how close America is getting to our cup of iniquity being full. When I see our nation doing the very things that God says will happen, it scares me. When we hold up for praise and reward and admiration people who are doing the very things that God says are an abomination to him, it scares me. When I see us chipping away at the very values that God has taught to us, that he's given to us, when I see us doing the very things and falling away from the very things on which God says nations will be judged, it scares me. And it scares me for my granddaughters. And I wonder if we are not fast approaching the time when the walls will come tumbling down in judgment. So, what do we need to do? Well, I think we need to begin with ourselves. We need to confess our sins to God. We need to be confronting ourselves, recognizing that God knows not only our actions. He knows our hearts. He knows our attitudes. We come to God and we repent and we believe that he can forgive us even though he is a just and righteous God because of Jesus Christ and his payment for our sins, his taking the punishment, the just punishment upon himself. We repent. Secondly, I think it is just vitally important that we pray for our nation, that we pray for our leaders, pray that God will give us leaders who are righteous, godly people, that he will help them to make decisions that will move us away from this slope of sin and destruction and help us to live in a way that will honor him and that will allow God to continue to bless us as he has in the past as a nation. Uh, let's let's pray together. Well, I thank you, Lord, that you saw to it that we'd have the story of of Joshua and that we could learn from it today. That in a sense, these things happened for us so that we could learn, and we, as individuals and as a corporate body, as a church confess to you our sin and ask for your forgiveness and we pray for our nation Lord we pray for President Obama we pray for the members of Congress and the Supreme Court Lord they have a terribly difficult job to do and so often the water seems so muddy give them clear vision help them to make decisions that will 
be in keeping with your will that will move us in the direction of righteousness and mercy and justice and love. We know, Lord, that apart from you, we are lost. 